Bookworm Games, Episode 52, Both Truth and Fiction. The start of Disc 2 of Xenogears, our main character, Faye, sits in a chair in the dark. There's a spotlight on him. There's a swinging pendant shedding motes of light, and there's stars beyond that. He sits in the dark, and he talks to us. Dreaming. I was dreaming. Perhaps it may have been but a long-forgotten memory. A dream. A memory. Things remembered when one is asleep. Things forgotten when one is awake. Where the deepest layers of memories become the outmost layers of one's dreams. Which are reality? Which are illusions? One cannot tell until one awakes. Or perhaps they are, at the same time, both truth and fiction. A vast nebulous with no boundaries. An emptiness equivalent to my own existence. I dreamt such a dream. A long, never-ending dream. This is essentially a poetic overview of all of Disc 2 of the remainder of Xenogears, which what we see or hear about the story largely replaces what we do to move through it. What is lost by this change is clear. Everything we've been able to do in the game so far, everything we might have expected to get to do from there on, exploring and fighting and unlocking new areas and finding treasures and meeting new characters, learning new things about our old ones, at a stroke, all this is practically gone. We're left with a game which is more like reading an animated book than playing an RPG. What's gained by this change is more subtle, but perhaps something which could not have been conveyed any other way. Poetry exists because of the limitations of language, those imposed by art. Whatever the forces external to the game which influenced its development, financial and creative strains that are well documented. If we look at the game as it stands, we see what the developers made of those limitations. What do we learn? Disc 2 is marked by a haunting retrospective tone. The player's mysterious intimacy with the characters, as if they were at confession or undergoing psychoanalysis. Aided by the oblique camera angle with its projected images. The speaker's pose, seated at an angle. Where are we? It looks very much like that inner room of phase consciousness, on the threshold of the unconscious domains of id and the coward. Only at peace now, and infinitely enlarged to embrace the cosmos, the Veltal. Who are they talking to? To themselves, and as if to posterity, handing down not just their story, but their reflections on it. And talking to us, I think, who are engaged in much the same work of narration and explication. So we sit together and we talk. As to the content of this initial transmission, which sets the tone for everything to come, 
much the way that the intro cutscene sets up the entire game without making making much sense at the time. Faye speaks of the soul and memory while the music box melody plays. And surely we should think back to that initial turning point in the story. And Doc's shed, the music box. What we have just seen is being cut down by Ramses, who at last unleashed his full potential, or what it seemed to be, and face fear for Ellie after having destroyed her home in his id manifestation. This is all close enough analog for the events of Lahan that first night of the game, and it's followed closely by that first meeting between Faye and Ellie in the forest, so that we can see Xenogears starting over, in a sense, at this point, recapitulating the way that Faye and Ellie have started over time and again in each new life, each previous one contained within it as a kind of memory on the one hand, and as a vision of fulfillment on the other. The inevitability of the dream, the nostalgia of the memory, the promise of the vision, all are palpable in these meditative words. The reversal that comes with the relativity between reality and fiction, the totality of life and of the whole series of lives collapsing existence into emptiness, this hints at the profound melancholy that accompanies Faye's thoughts, though it also approaches the ineffable vision of enlightenment, the possibility that some ultimate awakening will put each part into its true relation to the whole, a truth encapsulating what we call reality and fiction, an existence moving between them and unawed by the nothing it also is. This all carries a strongly met metaphysical, a strongly mystical accent, particularly in the tension between that awakening and the last paradoxical phrase, long, never-ending dream. Again, we have to note the prevalence of the ellipses throughout this dialogue, or monologue. There's silence as important as anything which is actually said. In this discussion, we could juxtapose the whole philosophical tendency of the will to truth <laughs> represented by the likes of Plato and Aristotle, the Scholastics and Descartes, Kant, Hume, and Nietzsche himself who critiqued them all. And we could put next to it the parallel tendency of the Buddha, the Tao Te Ching, Chuangzi, couldn't say if he was a man dreaming he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he was a man. In the meditations, Descartes makes the claim for certainty from a process of radical doubt, including this problem, the dreamer and the waking state. Whether his conclusion is convincing or not is up to the reader. But the question dramatized in this vast, nebulous ellipses of disc two is where is there a standpoint from which to consider each condition or to judge a life or to judge of creation as a whole is each thing only to be viewed across the distance from the viewpoint of another or in games in art in dreams in poetry do we have a way of seeing things whole 
like the shield of Achilles or any of the great similes and metaphors of Western art and parables, the consolations of religion, as they're filtered through this Eastern or at least cosmopolitan creation of Xenogears. The scene shifts to Lacan and Sophia in the portrait room, where we glimpse them before in Nissan. The portraits of the characters have accompanied their words throughout the game, standing in for the essence of that character, and in some cases expressive of strong emotion. Here we are shown another way to think about Disc 2, then, as the characters sitting for their portraits. Like the vast nebulous confessional, or like its inverse, this room bounded by sturdy walls in the cathedral, this Lacan standing in the light of this pendant-shaped window, rather than seated in the dark, the dark expanse of space while it swings overhead. The painter captured within his work of art, like Velázquez and Las Meninas, only Lacan's presence in the painting is precisely his evanescence, his characteristic brushwork, and his unfinished patch in the lower right corner. The characters have caught the fatigue of the developers, it seems, hitting the wall with their labor of love. Each is concerned that the other is tired, and the concern is mixed with playfulness, even flirtation, if such august, ancient people could be imagined to flirt. Call me Ellie, she says, like when they first met, when things were simpler, before she became the Holy Mother Sophia. He makes the excuse of going home for paints. She seems taken aback. She offers her personal guard, the Cajal, to zoom him there and back in their gears. But the paint is a pretense, a lie that bespeaks the truth of what going home would really mean to him, to go on painting her forever. In this, we see the muse transcend the work she inspires, as it must ever be, the impossibility of the work to fully realize the inspiring idea or person. Like the Mona Lisa, the image for encapsulating this is her smile. Dreams, the life of a man named Lacan, and the lives of countless other men, all but dreams. Now that I am awake, those countless numbers of long, heart-rending dreams are almost impossible to remember at all. In those dreams, I loved one woman. No matter the day, no matter the era, that did not change, nor did her name. If the work of art is insufficient, if one life is not enough, the thing to do is to embrace more lives and more life within the story, to give a fuller account, incorporating this other self by the name Ellie. She takes the stage. Now it's her turn, in the same place or in one just like it. A dream. I was dreaming a dream, or perhaps it was a memory from a distant past. A dream. A memory. Those words I was unable to convey that day that time, those thoughts I was unable to carry out, words and thoughts, the connection between the two, without words thoughts cannot be conveyed, without thoughts there are no words, 
They are both as vital as each other. They can never be divided, like the wings of angels, like a man and a woman. An unchangeable destiny. Feelings one wishes one could change. Meeting with the person who would change me and watching myself change. I dreamt such a dream, a long, never-ending dream. We're presented with the exact same scene from her perspective. The subject of the painting, reflecting on the public art below in the sanctuary, the two angels from up here in the hermetic light-filled room, the man and woman, like their creators, Takahashi and Saga. In the process of change, observing that, and yet in obedience to an unchanging destiny, manifest as feelings, her true name, what he called her, and what was Krellian talking about then, but his name changing, as if that independence she yearned for and perceived in him is reflected in the different names he can take, each life different, while hers hews to the same core structure, drawing his in each time. Her resolve and devotion echoing his, word for word, thought for thought, silence for silence. So, nature remains essentially the same, despite the many lives it moves through. What if art dared to take hold of life directly, not just in representation and metaphor, but in literal fact? This seems to be Krellian's project, art as science and technology, and his material, his humanity itself. He learned it from others, thanks to Sophia's encouragement. The scene opens on a nanotech lab, green tubes like Emeralda's and those in the Krellian flashback. Tara Melchior, round as a balloon, is glad to see Faye is recovered. It's naked again, like in the shower in Solaris. Faye is upright, Vitruvian man. Ellie, still needing more time to heal, is curled up in a fetal position. Stop staring at the naked girl, the wise man chides, and come greet your visitor. Satan, not far behind, like he was in Kislev. And how lucky to have landed near Melchior's place, to awake to the furthest thing from a baptismal brawl in a steam and soot-laden metropolis, where the showers are always broken. This advanced lab, like old man Bowles fossicking house under the sand, is a, quote, man's hideaway. Presently, Ellie is up and about too, and the two go outside to talk, Satan and Tara having their own things to discuss meanwhile. They all, it seems, sense a change, that second-disc mood of ripeness and destiny, a more peaceful place than the forest where they first met. Faye and Ellie reminisce and wonder what this change might mean but they don't have the chance to say much atop the Hobbit house lab before it's time to go back in. In healing them with his nanotechnology, Tara has released the seal. It seems 
redundant, unless there's a final seal on them beyond the limiters, physical, mental, already removed. But the important thing is that they realize the nanomachines could be deployed to remove everyone's seal. They could be launched by a nearby mass driver facility that would spread them over the entire surface of the world. The healing, the retrospection and tranquility that mark this turning point in the game, then, are connected with a purpose. Committing himself anew to continuing the work of healing and liberation, Fay is further rewarded. Tara gives him a wristband emotion control device. Remember those ones that change color with your emotions? Through serotonin and other chemicals, this will function something like a benign limiter regulating Faye's psyche by physical means, simultaneously unlocking the power of system id in the gear and suppressing id's actual manifestation in Faye's flesh. None too soon, the Shivat emissary arrives suddenly with news of the peace accord and the peril surrounding it. Opportunistic, two-faced, Shivat had been prepared to seal Faye away and now they come begging for his help. But is Tara one to talk? He, too, looks like he has long turned his back on others, preferring the peace of his studies. With the threat of devastation hanging over them, and that devastation already wrought in Ignis's cities, Faye's choice is clear. Doc casually mentions that he's brought his own Omnigear, Fenrir, that had been left with Gaspar for emergencies. Very like his sword, which the new gear also wields. It turns out Ball is there too, with Emeralda. They've been at work again on the host for the spirit of the Slayer of God. Bulked it up. He seems to have come to terms with whatever premonition so shocked him before when he uttered that same phrase. So shocked him that he tried to prevent Faye and Bart from making it out of the cave in one piece. Like Tara and Gaspar, he's come out of semi-retirement to help. In this remodeled Veltal too, Balthazar says, you'll feel the difference between speaking of fate and seeing it firsthand. With Faye set off on his mission, Satan and Ellie pick up the conversation where it broke off before. She speaks more openly to him doubting whether what she feels is love or desperation, believing that if they have some time apart, she will see which it is. Three weeks, it seems, have passed since the wreck, and in that time, her healing has also entailed her maturing. Like a mother, Satan says, echoing Krellian's language. She takes umbrage, but he's only putting a word to that change that Ellie herself has intuited. They'll go together to launch the capsule from the mass driver facility, and as if reminding us that in at least one past life she was a kind of mother, in that Zeboim where the memory came back to her so powerfully that she was able to unseal the ancient gates, her child Emeralda insists on going too. In one final conversation at Melchior's, once the others have gone, Graf pray pays a visit. It's not just luck then, but he who brought them here to be healed. 
And maybe Graf is the wrong name for this aspect of his nature. Don't we know him now as Lacan, at least in part? The game has led us with byway after winding byway of dropped hints and foreshadowing and analogy and illusion to the point of almost understanding the complex relations between all these characters. But sufficient obscurities still remain to make this long-sought-after understanding tantalizingly out of reach still. In a scene with the orbs and Krellian that follows next, it sounds like he too was in part responsible for the rescue, for he wouldn't let Ellie die. The elders are fine with their mother Antitype, who must be Miang, but Krellian considers the arrangement incomplete without Ellie herself secured. His emotion, a flaw to the elders, is integral to his intellectual project and his spiritual ambition. To borrow Ellie's language, he is all love, and they all desperation. They're insufficiently curious about where this leaves themselves, barrenly rational as they are in Krellian's scheme. The orb's attention is all on tracking Fay via memory cube data, that key we've heard so much about resonating and the seal breaking. Ramses, overweening and triumphant in their last meeting, has his confidence shattered in the next bout against Faye in Veltal II. Speaking from the chair again, a still image projected on what, we wonder, behind him, Faye's narrative leads us into the boss fight as System Id proves to outclass even the power of the Omnigear Vendetta. At attack level infinity for three turns, costing a very affordable quantity of fuel to use, and with a couple of new chi attacks unlocked for good measure, Fei destroys his opponent. He doesn't dwell on his prowess, though. He doesn't look around for someone to be seeing it. He's never seen Ramses as much of a rival, or thought of him much at all. But he draws our attention to his parting words. If only you didn't exist. It seems we have another type and anti-type issue again. The roles are reversed this time, as Ramses goes down in the foliage. Switching over to Ellie's voice, we see a still of them moving through the forest in gears. An impossibility in the gameplay, but aesthetically pleasing, so let it stand. The mass driver facility, it seems, is a ruin from the Zeboim civilization. It looks something like a particle accelerator. Skipping the dungeon by means of her narration, we see the nuclear-tipped rockets standing like tombstones. We hear how the people of that time destroyed each other in their pride and arrogance. Hard to miss the social critique implied there and the parallel to Ramses within the game. And given the original function of the facility, Ellie and the others' repurposing of it is ominous, though they make use of the launcher with the best intentions. These bombs in their stockpiles are never used throughout the rest of the game either, in violation of that principle of narrative efficiency, Chekhov's gun. Call it Zeboim's warheads. 
a conflicting principle of overkill, of crowding the narrative with far more than could ever be incorporated neatly, much less efficiently. Views of the nanomachine's dispersal, this pink aurora effect, and the sparkles drifting down over the world map at a new camera angle, over Ethos HQ, Lahan, the orphanage, Nissan. It's a river in the sky, removing the bonds. We cut to the mobile surface supremacy weapon, huge as a city. And it looks a bit like Solaris itself, if it was more hedgehog-shaped and less spiky and spirally. Fighting through the units. So there's a sequence here, probably something like that in the Desert Despair chapter. When you go after the flagship, that's been left out. Kislev's central admin district turns out to be a Fatima ship built after the Great War. The Yggdrasil, a ship-sized central command and secret weapon for it, the Transformer sequence into super-dimensional gear Yggdrasil 4. The fourth. Okay. And the Fort Hurricane battle. I am lost for words here. The stats are outrageous. It's another battle you can't lose. After a section of the game, you can't play. Then we go back to Faye, narrating the celebration of the peace. And, all at once, the mutations in the streets of Bledovic. With the limiter removed, Krellian's seal, Hammer's words about the normal humans are loosely quoted, but there's no idea that this is what he actually meant by that. There's no real clarification on how this mutation is different from the other mutant forms that we've met with throughout the game. But it seems that the orbs see this as the germination for the flesh of God. That these are the apostles. But this virus of Krellians is actually a Trojan horse released in the event of Solaris's destruction and superseding the use of the key by the elders, somehow. He tells Miang, this is a replacement body for God. And he claims the Ark. Now, is that the ship or some other sort of vessel holding something holy? Or both? Miang, for her part, is going to switch allegiance lightly as anything. We move to the Soylent facilities on the surface where the mutants gather. We begin to see what's different this time. Ellie narrates, they consume other humans to ease the pain of the change that's come over them, to preserve their short and bitter lives. We see stills of the facilities of the merging and recombining of the bodies, not as food now, but into a single weapon. This is the M plan. Ellie perceives it as natural will to live on their part. 
they feel a salvation promised without words. In the Sufal Mass, the haves and have-nots and the wells that Billy has freed, we have coming to the surface a kind of tension that's been latent in this game all along. We fight another battle in which finishing off the support parts triggers damage, but the main part will consume them to heal itself. So you have to strike a balance between what you fight and what you leave. It's also unusual in that elemental blows heal the main body of the Sufal mass. Finally, fighting stuff the size of a small gear, we are using our party without gears in the sort of way that those uh, Graf and Id battles have been going on all along. It's a scene of anime that comes out uh, for the first time in a long while, in which Ellie apologizes and then gives of her blood by using Satan's sword. We see the creature's sigh and its smile. I wonder if we have a kind of picture here of a grail maiden motif. At any rate, Faye has somehow arrived just in time to hear Ellie preach, to see her as Sophia and Ellie at once. And past her, we see the cluster of crosses, far more than the one or three of traditional iconography. These are the crooked parts of some unimaginable machine. Ellie winds up by saying that the cost of avoiding death is to merge with Solaris at the loss of their human heart. All of you want to be loved, needed by someone, so we look to others. By ourselves, we are lonely, so we try to draw close together to live. That's what it means to be human. That's how people live. A single hand cannot clap. Now is Sophia, she says, to relieve your pain, I'll give however much of my flesh you need. Therefore, don't throw away your dignity as humans. Don't let go of your human heart. She doubts herself, and it's at least rhetorical to capture the benevolence of her listeners. She doubts her own foolishness, her own hypocrisy. And it comes across as pity, but also there's a hope here for truly giving life and love that the human possibility should come from one who has eaten soilent flesh and taken it as medicine all her life is surely part of her own doubt. But I think we see a kind of security in that this is the repetition of the past, and this, at least 
some part of that other self, Krellian has said, is within her. At this point, Faye picks up the narration once more. They destroy the facility. They take in those who were there and treat them at Nissan. It's a physical and a spiritual regeneration. The word he uses is that she admonishes. I, I don't know that that is quite the word for what she's doing, but at any rate, word and words seem important here as articulated and spreading that Ellie is the second advent of Mother Sophia. They feel and hear that salvation is there in Nissan. Back in the orb chamber, observing the people gathering and about to use the key on the lock below, the elders are paralyzed by lightning energy emanating from Cain. In fact, from an image of Cain. Their resurrection and God's is not of their own will, it seems. He appeals to his authority over them. His intention, he says, is to pass the helm. This voyaging, traveling, journeying metaphor brings us all the way back to that opening cutscene, that impossibly huge ship. Since lost to sight, it seems, but at last starting to come into view, starting to come together for us. Thanks for listening.